Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 13th. Uh, I'm lucky, I hope, for none of you. Uh, and I hope uh, you're going to be lucky by listening to a particularly interesting show today about religion and freedom. Um, regular listeners of, uh, and viewers of the show know that we spend a lot of time on this show trying to figure out how we, and I use that word carefully, we, in, we have become so educated, industrialized, rich and democratic in the West. Uh, we had uh, a couple of months ago um, the Harvard uh, academic Joe Henrik on the show, who's written a wonderful book called The Weirdest People in the World. Uh, weirdest, of course, referring to Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. Uh, Henrik has a, a, a very original theory that all this stemmed from changes in church, uh, Roman Catholic church policy in the 11th century when it came to uh, cousins marrying cousins. Uh, other guests on the show have also had a very interesting take on why we are as we are in the West. Uh, the, uh, the anthropologist James Sussman and his history of work suggested that the Weberian notion of uh, self-sacrifice uh, that came out of the Reformation is the origins of our obsession with work. Uh, Roy Richard Grinker suggested that much of contemporary madness is associated with the isolationist nature of uh, post-Reformation Europe. And of course, uh, thinkers like Kahindi Andrews, the left-wing uh, Anglo-Caribbean hi uh, historian, suggests that uh, all this weirdness, all this Western-educated wealth is, of course, found the origins in colonialism and the Roman Catholic Church then. I'm curious in terms of, of, of making sense of, of, of our contemporary Western history uh, to invite somebody else on the show who has a, quite a different perspective in some ways. Uh, Mustafa Akyol is the author of a really interesting new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. It's a book about Islam and its failure to essentially develop in the same way as Christianity. And I'm curious as a, as a kind of uh, opening, um, opening question to Mustafa, uh, before we get to Islam, do you see the Western achievement, and I use the, the, that term carefully because, of course, not everyone considers it purely an achievement, do you see it as a consequence of the history of Christianity? Thank you, uh, Andrew, for uh, having this discussion with me, first of all. Uh, well, to some extent, uh, I think it was possible in the Western tradition for Christianity to give up course of power, as I put it, with the Enlightenment. And for me, that's the most important aspect of the Enlightenment. You see that in the works of John Locke or Pierre Bayle, uh, his French counterpart uh, from the 17th century, they were arguing that Christianity should not dominate the state for because when you do that, you persecute other churches. And, and the way out of this is, uh, you know, neutrality and religious freedom and, and toleration. Now, 
but this happened only after a terrible crisis in Christianity. Uh, I mean, there were terrible persecutions, religious wars. It was a really bloody era, 30 years war. And after all that exhaustion, I think some Christians began to think of this idea of freedom and toleration. And I feel that in the Islamic world today, in some parts of it, in the Middle East especially, there is such an exhaustion at the after what's seen with all the sectarian wars and conflicts, authoritarian regimes, illiberal interpretations of religion. So I see a search for an understanding of Islam that is more respectful to individual freedom and, and, and plurality of society. And there are already Muslims who think like that. There are already hundreds of millions of Muslims who actually live like that. They live under secular regimes. They're not imposing their faith. But with my book, I wanted to give a coherent argument about how we can make that switch as Muslims without abandoning our faith in the core of the faith, but certainly reinterpreting a lot of coercive practices. I'm curious, uh, Mustafa, as to your take on the Enlightenment. You mentioned um, John Locke, of course, uh, whose Christianity was complicated. Um, but there were many other figures in the Enlightenment. Uh, Voltaire, for example, who wasn't a great fan of organized religion. Uh, John Stuart Mill, a late, a late figure in the Enlightenment. Again, not a big fan of the, of the church. Um, is the Enlightenment... Uh, the Western Enlightenment, is it intimately bound up with religion? Couldn't it have happened without Christianity? Well, I mean, I'm not a scholarly expert on the Western Enlightenment. Yeah, but I you just... make it the heart of your argument. You suggest yeah, that, I mean, that, that the Muslim world needs to experience its own enlightenment. Yes, and I emphasize by an Islamic enlightenment, I mean an Islamic enlightenment. And that therefore my book is about really discovering the roots of toleration or individual freedom or reason as a source of wisdom independent from religion, from the Islamic tradition. Well, coming back to the Western Enlightenment, as you said, there are different strains in it. There are different thinkers in it. That's why I emphasize John Locke a lot, because he was speaking from within Christianity. He was not against Christianity. His personal faith is a complicated matter, but when you read his a letter concerning toleration, he's basically arguing against Christians of his day who believed in the divine rights of kings, again, a popular idea in our world in the Gulf today, like obedience to the ruler. He was also criticizing those who believed that the, uh, the government, the state, should actually uphold one church. But he was making this argument not as an argument against Christianity, but the reinterpretation. So that aspect of enlightenment is, to me, interesting and guiding. And that's why I'm not actually referring much to French enlightenment, because in, in the tradition in France, especially inspired by Voltaire, sometimes uh, secularism or enlightenment turned illiberal and oppressive on religion. And I'm not advocating that. And I'm not advocating that combative uh, attitude uh, of enlightenment towards the religion. Um, one of the chapter titles in your book, uh, Mustafa, is Why Theology Matters. And it's in, in many ways a, a, a book about the historic theology of, of Islam. It's a, a nostalgic take on it. Why does theology matter? Who cares? Well, people who believe care. And Are you a believer? Yes, I'm a Muslim. And, and I think... Theology matters even if people don't know about it and even if people don't believe in it because theology over time shapes culture. 
at least that is what I see in the Muslim majority part of the world. And I mean, if you look at people like Max Weber, they will think that theology influenced modern Western history as well. Now, but only in, in an accident, uh, you, you bring up Weber, which is an important point. But Weber understood that the, the, theolo- the, the, the consequences of theology were totally unintended, that capitalism came out of the Reformation, but it wasn't a theological issue. It wasn't as if Calvin or Luther wanted capitalism. It was an unintended consequence. I mean, Weber's theory is also criticized, but I refer to Weber because unlike Marx, for example, Weber thought that religion is not always defined by infrastructure, by by the material conditions, but also it influences them back. I've generally believed in that when looking into religious issues. And of course, theology may not matter in a secular society. Maybe modern West is like that right now. But theology matters in the Islamic tradition. And that's why in the chapter, because people believe in theology. And in my chapter, why theology matters, what I wanted to do was to show Muslims that there were alternative theologies in early Islam. I mean, experts know this, but the common Muslim is not really deep into these issues. And what I wanted to show is that there were two main different theological perspectives, which one of them said, divine law, God's commandments, tell us about ethical truths that we humans could be able to know through reason and conscience. So that was a more universalistic theology. Religion tells us something, but that something is also a universal truth. I mean, Aristotle could figure that out. So you can learn from other traditions and civilizations. That was one theory. The other the other doctrine was the one which said, no, there is no truth outside of the religious law. Things are right and wrong only because God said so. That's known as the divine command theory. And I show how this divine command theory approach dominated Sunni Islam after the 11th, 12th century and how that stagnated Islamic thought and how we can reopen this discussion today. So Theology doesn't always matter everywhere. If a society is atheist, of course, it doesn't matter. But in faithful societies, it does. And I'm trying to show the nuances within Islamic theology in that chapter. It seems, though, in the West that the vitality and originality of the West was built on the return to religion. So I'm curious. um, I always expected the Khomeini revolution in Iran to represent the beginnings of something new uh, in the Shia world. Why do you think that the Iranian revolution hasn't hasn't triggered uh, the modernization of Iran? What is it about the, the, the Shiite revolution that makes it so politically reactionary? Well, because it's an authoritarian, I mean, it created an authoritarian regime. I mean, the revolution in the beginning was a reaction to Shah. And of course, there were different groups in it. It was not just the Islamists led by Ayatollah Khomeini. There were liberals, there were communists, there were socialists. There were some secular opposition to the Shah as well. But as it often happens in revolutionary processes, when power is when power changes hands, ultimately it ends up being concentrated at the hands of one group and especially one person. And has happened in, you know, certainly the Bolshevik Revolution. So what, what came out of that, which was a reaction against Shah, which was an authoritarian governance regime, was just to build another authoritarian regime. And I think it's suffocating Iran uh, since the 1980s. 
And it is a regime founded in the name of Islam and which is trying to make society more Islamic by imposing the faith through religious policing. Iranian uh, religious forces are, you know, revolutionary guards and others are trying to cover women at the streets of Iran today. And I'm criticizing that from an Islamic point of view. And I'm saying that if you if you impose religion at, uh, through a regime on a society, you just create hypocrisy and resentment against religion. It's not an accident that Iran is the number one source of ex-Muslims uh, in the world today because a lot of people get fed up with the regime and they abandon Islam, which is one of the arguments I make uh, while saying that we need to rearticulate certain things in Islam. So, the, so faith is based on freedom and not coercion. And uh, coercion can come from an authoritarian regime in Iran or sometimes it comes from community as well. Mustafa, you use this word rearticulate. There's a lot of re, uh, re's in, in your work. Uh, we, we're reopening Muslim minds. You're rearticulating Islam. And then you say often in the book how we lost the sciences, how we lost universalism, how we lost morality. We, I guess, are Muslims, uh, is this a return? Is, is this a, a nostalgic return to empire? When you say we lost, when did you actually have universalism? Uh, when did you have the sciences, as you put them? Um, there's something extremely romantic and nostalgic about your 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 arguments. Maybe they're right, uh, and they're appealing. Um, in a way, to uh, a return, a return to greatness. W what period are you talking about? Uh, thank you. I'm not advocating a return to any imperial greatness. Uh, I'm not saying Muslims should have the Abbasid Empire or Caliphate again. But you are but sort of suggesting that when you say how we lost the sciences, how we lost morality, how we lost universalism. Well, again, I'm not referring to the power there. I'm referring to a mindset in early Islamic civilization, which which allowed Muslims to be more open-minded and open to the contributions of other civilizations. A thousand years ago, it's a fact that Muslims were the pioneers of the world in science. The best advances in science, best medicine was in the Muslim world. Um, algebra was developed by Muslims, became, uh, uh, I mean, it was called algebra among Muslims. A lot of uh, inventions were coming from the Muslim world that actually they were transferred into Europe. Now, what made that possible? There is this golden Islamic age. I'm not going saying we should go back and beam ourselves back to history, but I'm saying what allowed that was Muslims were not shying away from reading and translating Aristotle and learning from that and trying to reconcile that with their religious text and scripture. But the denial of that led to an insular worldview. And especially in the Sharia, I mean, uh, Muslims stop believing that there can be any ethical value that comes from the outside. And when those values came from the outside in the modern era, things like gender equality, things like human rights, things like religious freedom or freedom of speech, a lot of conservatives says we don't buy any of this because no, no wisdom can come from the infidels. Whereas I believe Islam was great when we didn't have this obsession that we should re reject everything that comes from the quote-unquote infidels. Uh, one of the characters, yeah, your book is, 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 is very erudite. Uh, one of the characters in the book is, is, is the great um, uh, Islamic uh, 
thinker, writer, Ibn Rushdi. Could you talk a little bit about him and why you see him as a symbol of this lost world? Sure, Ibn Rushd, uh, as uh, his name Arabic reads, and he's known in Avar in, in the West as uh, Avaraz. He was very famous in uh, you know early yes. early modern Europe uh, and like in, beginning from the let's say 13th century, because he was the one who actually allowed West Europeans to rediscover Aristotle. Aristotle became the philosopher, and Averroes became the commentator on that. Now. He's very interesting because in Islamic history, there was this line of philosophy, as we call them, philosophers. So these were people like Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina and ultimately Ibn Rushd and Ibn Tufail. They believed in universal wisdom. So they devoured Aristotle and Plato and whoever could read you know, from the Greek uh, philosophical tradition. Ibn Rushd did also something else, which I find important. He was also a kader and a, and a jurist, so like a judge and a jurist. So he was also interpreting Islamic law, the Sharia. And there are passages in his works that are little known to Muslims today, where he says there are universal laws that are written in human nature. He uses the word sunan gair maktuba, which means unwritten laws. These are things like mercy or justice, and people intuitively have some moral inclinations. And he says, these are universal. And then, then there are written laws of uh, societies, which he refers to the Sharia there. He says, when there's a conflict between the two, we can reinterpret the written laws. So he believes in something right, that we can call today human rights, or he believes in the epistemology that would allow us to arrive at human rights, which was not a popular view at that time. No wonder he was attacked. He was demonized. Some of his books were burnt. That's why we don't have them in Arabic originals, but we have them from Hebrew or Latin translations that survived in Europe. But I, I, I tried to show how he was looking into some of the burning issues of his day and still important, jihad, how he had very progressive views on women and how that was that came from the fact that, for example, he was convinced by Plato and Plato's argument that men and women have the same intellectual capacities, which was not a fashionable idea, even in Greece itself or, or, or the medieval uh, Muslim or Christian world. So there, that's why I'm speaking of a return. I'm not saying we should go back and copy everything Ibn Rushd was saying. Still, these are different worlds. But many Muslims have this idea that once upon a time our civilization was great and today we're not. Everybody accepts that. I'm just saying, well, we were great, not because we were too pious and God you know, blessed us. That's what some religious people think. I mean, conservative people think. Uh, or because we, we turned, uh, we, we, our decline began because we were corrupted by foreign ideas. That's what some fundamentalists believe. I'm saying, no, Islamic civilization was vibrant because it was pluralist. Muslims were not just Muslims. I mean, they were working together with Christians and Jews. Uh, demographically, Islamic civilization was vibrant, economically vibrant. So I'm extracting those lessons from history. To I, I get that, to... but 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 are you suggesting that someone living in a camp in Lebanon, a Palestinian? Are you suggesting that the underclass in Tehran or um, or Cairo or or, or 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 in Pakistan? that they should pick up uh, Averroes and suddenly become liberal Muslims. Surely the, 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 the challenge and problems with um, Islam in the modern world is a socioeconomic one rather than a theological one. It's about inequality. It's about exploitation. 
I mean, if 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 some if if some angry young Muslim picked this stuff up, it would be meaningless to them. Well, I, I see mean, it's all very well for you as an educated guy working at the Cato Institute in D.C. to to peddle this stuff, but for most people, it's irrelevant. Well, I see how religion can look purely irrelevant from a purely secular point of view, and I understand that. I respect that point of view, but I have a different point of view. Uh, I think religion matters because really people act on religious ideas. And yes, there are economic problems in the Muslim world, for sure. There's underdevelopment, there's poverty, there's corruption, there is a rich class that is thriving thanks to crony capitalism, not free markets. Uh, and and that, that there's a lot of poor Muslims. And of course, those people need sustenance first and ideas. But it, this doesn't mean that there are no intellectual ideas in Muslim societies. People in Pakistan are having discussions about whether we should really have blasphemy laws. Well, those who have the discussion sometimes put their lives in danger. People in Malaysia are discussing whether religion police should really monitor people's private lives uh, while not you know, doing anything against the corrupt politicians. So there is a healthy discussion on all of these issues in many Muslim societies. That's why I'm speaking to those institutions in Muslim societies. I mean, to come to back to your point, yes, there are economic problems, huge economic problems in the Muslim world, but you cannot deal with them actually when you, without dealing with the problem of political authoritarianism. And political authoritarianism is sometimes justified by religious arguments. Therefore, it's so connected. And uh, it would be a worthwhile effort to s focus on the economic issues in the Muslim world. Many people do that. I support that. But I'm focus I focus on something else, which is the issue of religion and freedom. Yeah, and, and your book is, I think, a very noble attempt. There's something Voltairean, I think, about your, your call to go back to uh, uh, a, a more liberalized religion. I, I'm not criticizing you, but it just seems for the... The challenges of, of, of Muslims in the world today. I mean, think about France. Um, I pick up for people watching or people listening. We have an image of a, a, an FT, a Financial Times piece about Le Pen's continual rise in France. There's a very strong likelihood, uh, Mustafa, that I think that, uh, that, that Marine Le Pen will come to power in France. What do you tell French Muslims, perhaps the most prominent and important uh, Muslim community in Europe, if not in the world today. What do you tell them about liberalizing, embracing the West when you have someone like Le Pen who's likely to come to power or who, if, if not coming to power, is extremely popular with Christians? Shouldn't they be fighting back rather than embracing this rather tepid liberalism? Well, uh, just to go back... That is precisely why, actually, I'm not thinking in the terms of Voltaire, but I see John Locke as a more friendly figure uh, from my, in terms of my own argument. Well, but even because coming I'm back to Locke, I mean, Locke, Locke was above all else the theorist of property rather than a religious thinker. Yes, but, well, no. I mean, he has very strong arguments against imposing an orthodoxy. He has very strong arguments against the divine rights of kings. So I think he has very political arguments. I mentioned Pierre Bale too. I mean, in, in the French tradition, I find Pierre Bale very important. He was the one who criticized the Christian doctrine of compelling people to enter the church. Uh, so, I mean, Voltaire, I, I, I liked a lot of things Voltaire said, but I think he had a very ambitiously fierce take on religion, which was negative. And I, I don't associate with that. But anyway, let's come to contemporary France. Well, I've written an article about France 
in foreign policy, to which some people in France tried to respond, they responded, titled, yes, there's a crisis in Islam today, but Macron is not helping. So that was what I wrote in Foreign Pulse a few months ago. I would recommend that article. Uh, I am worried about the illiberal secularism and nativism in France and other places as well, but it's most burning in France. There has been ter ter terrible terrorist attack against French society, so it's only understandable that the French politicians are worried about that. But unfortunately, this the response to terrorism turned into a witch hunt on conservative communalist Muslim practices. And I'm worried and I'm critical about that. And I, I criticize that. And when I criticize that, what I tell to French Muslims is that you have the right to defend your full religious freedom in France. And I'm totally with you on that. Uh, I'm actually one of the most vocal critics of bans on hijab, Muslims, Muslim women's headscarf, even niqab face veil that has taken place in France in, or Belgium. But when I say this, I add one more thing. I am defending the right of Muslim women to wear whatever they want in France, in that case, the hijab. But I'm also very much in favor of women in Saudi Arabia or Iran not to wear the headscarf. And I see this as all connected. It's about can we defend individual freedom in every society? Uh, and, uh, and I'm with Muslim, conservative Muslims when they uh, stand up against uh, Macron. And I see this as a vicious cycle. I mean, the more we have fundamentalists or intolerant views about Islam, European politicians are becoming more intolerant and so on and so forth. Although this is a vicious cycle that I'm trying to break with what I write. Uh, Mustafa, um, as, as I said earlier, you are a, a, a fellow at the, the Cato Institute. I think that's your day job. That's how you pay your bills. This was, a, or this is a, a, a quite a right-wing uh, institute funded and founded by the, the uh, by Charles Koch. Um, let's talk a little bit about America and Islam. Uh, we had the wonderful Lebanese uh, journalist uh, Kim Khatas on the show recently, writing about her new book, Black Wave, which interprets the Sunni-Shia schism uh, in, in the world today, the Iranian-Saudi schism, uh, in terms of the United States and presents it as a kind of triangle in which many Muslims around the world have been um, subjected to. What about America in all this, uh, in the crisis of Islam and the vilification of Islam and the wars against Islam? Uh, today, I think uh, Joe Biden announced that American troops were going to be withdrawn from Afghanistan, clearly another religious war. Um, is there a role for um, uh, critiquing the American uh, approach to Islam? I mean, where is that in your book? Yes. <laughs> and uh, let me begin by correcting one thing, if you allow me. You define Cato Institute as a right-wing uh, think tank. Cato Institute defines itself as a libertarian think tank. Yes, fair enough. And, Good point, yeah. And but it, it's a right libertarian institute rather than a left libertarian one, well, which is a big difference. Uh, let me just tell you then, I mean, what does it mean in terms of the Cato Institute and its policies? Cato Institute was the only major think tank in Washington, D.C. that opposed the occupation of Iraq in 2003 by American forces. So it is also a think tank that has been advocating for a diplomatic solution to the tension with Iran. It's a think tank that criticizes neocon, you know, U.S. imperialistic ambitions in the world. So 
right, left, I mean, these are, I think, interesting. The Cato Institute is also an institute that defends immigration into the United States and has been very critical of anti-immigrant attitudes that you find on the right. Fair I think enough. Cato it's it's an important point to make. I, I take your point. I think that's a fair point to make. Thank you so much. Uh, well, and I agree with my colleagues uh, in Cato on these issues. I mean, I'm, I've, I joined the Cato Institute a few years ago. I've been re writing about these issues for two decades, at least right now. Uh, and I I am very much critical. But, uh, of and, I, and I don't mean this personally, but uh, so don't take it in, in a personal way. But might you be their kind of house Muslim? I don't know what you, what you mean by that. I should just say that you're ex you as the sort of liberal Muslim, acceptable pro-Western Muslim. Obviously, Cato liked my views and I like Cato's views and that's how we came together. But I'll tell you one thing. I defend, I began writing about Islam and classical liberalism and enlightenment, not because I joined Cato Institute. I've been writing about these things since early 2000s in my home country, Turkey. And I was living in Turkey and I was writing columns in the Turkish media. I had to move to the U.S. ultimately because Turkey became inhospitable to liberal views like that of mine. So mm. I really believe in these ideas. I wrote about in my first book, Islam Without Extremes, in 2011. It was published. I've been writing articles in the Turkish Islamic media about freedom 20 years ago. So that's what I believe in. Ultimately, that brought me to a Cato Institute, which believes in freedom. And they wanted to work with somebody who believes in freedom and Islam at the same time. And how I uh, and they they apparently like the way I put this together. So uh, I'm saying this because there have been other people who said that, oh, you know, you are coming to America. You're writing these things. You're saying these things because you're based in an American think tank. I'm saying, no, I came to Cato because I was defending these ideas already. Just want to make that clear. Secondly, uh, I am very critical of U.S. foreign policy. And before that, European colonialism, I mean, in the whole history of Islam. I mean, it began with French, France colonizing Algeria in a brutal way, 130 years, British colonialism and American foreign policy, not just occupation of Iraq, but support for dictators. I've been very critical of these things for years and I have many articles about these things. Uh, I'm just in this book highlighting something else, which is the problems I see in the Muslim world. But I also say in the book, for example, you might be fine. You might find that passage interesting. I believe there are good values in Western liberal democracies values like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, equality, equality before law. These are good values, but also these values didn't make much progress in the Muslim societies in the past 200 years for a few reasons. And one is that Western powers sometimes use this as a pretext for their colonial aggression. For example, France, when they occupied Algeria, they said, we are bringing you civilization. They called it Mission Civilatrice. Uh, there's actually a very interesting story. Like this was told to an old man in Algeria, and he said, "If they brought civilization, why did they come with so much gunpowder?" So this is a really ugly history of Western geostrategic interests, and I'm very critical of that. But I'm also very critical of the people in the Muslim world who point this uh, Western hypocrisies, double standards, or or aggressions to justify. Denying human rights. Iran does that all the time. When you look into the Iranian regime narrative, they will always speak about American imperialism. They will speak about Western colonialism, on which issues sometimes they might have a point. But 
they will use this to deny universal declaration of human rights. Well, well, there are some things bad about Western foreign policy. It doesn't mean that there, there are bad values in every Western civil society. No wonder a lot of Muslims come here to find freedom and because they, they can find in their home countries. Uh, Mustafa, let's end. You, you mentioned you're, you're, you're originally from uh, Turkey. Uh, let's end. Uh, I'm curious as to your take on, on, on what the modern history of Turkey can tell us. Uh, Soli Ozel is an old friend of mine. He's been on the show. We had uh, Ece Temelkuren, uh, the well-known Turkish journalist who now is in self-imposed exile in Croatia. Uh, what are the warnings to Muslims about what's happened in Turkey? What can we learn from the history of Turkey in the last 25 years? Well, both Soli and uh, Ece are friends, especially Soli is a good friend of mine for many years. Uh, and I think me and Soli were a bit more optimistic about this Erdogan era in Turkey in the very beginning. I mean, he was always more reserved than that. I was more optimistic. Uh, but ultimately, Turkey today is really a sad story of authoritarianism, and which has made life difficult for any critical person. Uh, that's why AJ, I didn't know she was out of Turkey, but uh, many people are out, or when they're in, you know, there's fear that something can happen to you if you're critical of the government. So it's a sad story. What has happened in Turkey is that Turkey was founded, modern Turkey was by Ataturk. Um, he was, he brought in a kind of enlightenment, which was very secularist, but it was kind of the Voltaire style enlightenment, which believed in kind of crushing religious institutions and, you know, no tolerance to the... So uh, Ataturk was Voltaire. That's, I, I've never heard that comparison. It's an interesting one. I mean, by, I mean, the Jacobins, is the term that we use in France. Yeah, and you've Kipala. used that word Jacobinism in some of your work, haven't you? Yeah, uh, because they were they were inspired by the French tradition and French tradition has its values and some, some virtues, of, uh, certainly the French political tradition. But France is a country where liberty came in contrast and clash with religion very often. And French secularism has this uh, zealous attitude towards religion to minimize the impact on religion public square, which is still going on, which is still going on these bans about banning, uh, bans about religious symbols in the public square. Ataturk was very much inspired by that. So the secularism he brought was an illiberal secularism. It's, it included closing down Islamic institutions, madrasas. He personally didn't touch the headscarf, but ultimately Kemalist got obsessed with banning the headscarf in the public square, in universities and public jobs. And that was, I think, the wrong kind of enlightenment that we Muslims need, rather than a more uh, limited... It, 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 it wasn't a Lockean liberalism. What kind of liberalism was it? You're saying a, Jap a, a Jacobean, a, a uh, Robespierre-like yeah. liberalism. Yes, and Ataturk didn't bring even democracy. I mean, he established a one-party state. Uh, after him, Turkey entered into democracy, but there were military coups uh, done in the name of upholding Ataturk's principles. I mean, I'm not here to bash Ataturk. He had some, I think, important contributions to Turkey, but I find his secularist legacy sometimes troubling and especially not liberal enough. Now, this culminated in a reaction, which, especially a religious reaction, which was... Uh, captured by Erdogan in early 2000s. And he initially promised that we will make Turkey actually more liberal, more free by joining the European Union and realizing the EU criteria. People like me were hopeful about that in the beginning. 
But that rapidly changed once he grabbed power. And it turned out that, as the Kemalis always suspected, really, this was more much of a Machiavellian move. And ultimately, he uh, now established a very authoritarian system. Uh, it is He's elected, I'll give him that. So Erdogan has popularity. But when you look at fr from a liberal point of view, freedom of speech, especially, Turkey is very grim. It is one of the countries in which freedom declined the most rapidly in the past 10 years. So it's a sad story. And I think the lesson from Turkey today is that uh, focus on not just elections, which is important in any society, but also focus on rule of law, independence of the courts, and free speech. Because if you don't have these, populists can come and sweep a society, as I believe we saw in the US too in the past four years. And, and Eche, of course, wrote her wonderful book, How to Lose a Country, which she universalized the Turkish experience. Uh, Mustafa uh, Akyol's new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, is a, really a, a, a very humanist uh, take on the history of Islam, a return to reason, freedom, and tolerance. He certainly, I think, in this interview, some of my questions have been quite critical. He's responded, and I think, in a very uh, very convincing way. I, I want to thank you, uh, Mustafa, for a, for a very good showing, um, and, I, and I'm strongly encouraging people to read your new book. Uh, you're in D.C. at the moment in these strange times in April 2021, where we're all locked inside. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading? First of all, thank you for having me on the show, Andrew. What people should read? I have a, I, I can promote this book by my friend and colleague Asma Afsaruddin. She's a scholar of Islam, contemporary issues in Islam. If people are interested in these discussions about women's rights and gender and, and freedom and jihad in Islam, uh, this is a good book. And my own book, humbly, I can recommend that as well. And thanks to you for bringing that up and for having me on the show and having this very interesting conversation. Great conversation, uh, Mustafa. We'll have you back on to talk about Islam, the world, the West, uh, and all these other great issues. I really enjoyed that. Uh, good luck, keep well, and best uh, and congratulations on an excellent book. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Let's do it again. Thanks.